Liberia. Not the place you want to go for vacation, right? And they moved there, West Africa, uh, to do translation. They, they're doing their own translation. That's after they learned the language, then to do Bible studies, then to lead people to the Lord, then to maybe start a church, giving their lives to it. Uh, Aaron was a member here for a number of years, and uh, they're actually, they were in the first service. They're in the commons area. Well, actually, they're in a Sunday school now, but right after this, they'll be in the commons area. Uh, go talk to them. Talk to them about Liberia, what the Lord's doing in West Africa. And uh, that's happening because of your faithfulness and uh, giving and generosity to mission support. Uh, let's remind ourselves now in prayer um, about what God's doing around the world and what God's doing in this church. Father, uh, we need more people uh, to go to the harvest field. The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. I mean, there's so uh, many people who have faithfully gone and yet, at least in the American church, we're in a little bit of a, a dry spell of missionaries being sent. Matter of fact, so many more missionaries are coming to us than we are sending out, which is a little unnerving. But Father, we pray that you would do the work uh, that you do. Throughout generations, you sometimes just lay your hand on the place and call a number of men and the women to your service. And we've seen that happen here over the years. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would do it again. Uh, there's so many places of deep need I do pray you be with Aaron and Amy as they are with us for a little while and as they return to Liberia, protect them, keep them safe. Uh, help them to uh, be good translators and may the work of their hands be established in the heavens and may it bear fruit that a little body of believers would start to believe in West Africa. And Father, even if we, uh, if we don't go, if we don't sense that call, and that's up to you, we pray that you would make us a, a, a church that's world-focused rather than just focused on building a name for ourselves here, that we would want to build your name around the world and around the city and around the country and to bring it home. Father, we pray that uh, you would build the kingdom in our hearts. Uh, we have gone through this week, and most of us probably have just stumbled into this worship service, maybe out of the habit, tradition, routine. But we're here, and we want to hear from you. And Father, we pray that you would uh, allow us to be a thankful people, a people filled with gratitude. Sometimes we're so selfish we forget to be thankful. So we pause now. And uh, we want you to hear our prayers of things that have happened this week that we can be thankful for. Maybe it's just that you preserved us. Maybe it's just, just that we, we made it through it. Maybe you did something in our lives this week that um, we need to say thanks. We're grateful. And Father, uh, we have a week ahead. Uh, so we need to ask for your help 
a supplication. We need to ask for the things that are before us this week that seem daunting, that seem overwhelming. We are so tempted to do them in our own strength, to not think of you until we get in trouble (laughs) and need to raise a flag. But maybe right now, the things that are before us this week that we're asking you for, we can bring to you now in this service and ask you to walk ahead of us and prepare our hearts for whatever's coming. We, we pray prayers of supplication. And so, Father, meet with us in your word. We don't need to hear from any person. We need Holy Spirit for you to do the work. And we pray Christ in your name. Amen. Uh, in 1890, uh, a famous uh, artist had an argument with one of his best friends, a guy by the name of Paul Gauguin, who I love uh, the poetry and I love uh, the pictures of Paul Gauguin. And then after the argument with his best friend, Paul Gauguin, he then had an argument with, well, let's just call her a lady of the night. And uh, the argument with this lady of the night also had a relationship with Paul Gauguin, and there was this little, like, lover's triangle that was established. And as a result of that, Vincent Van Gogh put down his paintbrush and picked up a pistol. And he walked to a manure pile in the middle of a field and uh, shot himself in the heart. Or so he thought. He actually missed his heart. He knocked himself down. He stumbled back. He called a doctor. And uh, the doctor said, what happened? And Van Gogh famously said, I think I missed myself. That was his answer. He misses heart probably a little bit too far to the side from where your heart actually is. He lived for a couple more days. And then he got a fever and he died. And his last words, Vincent Van Gogh's last words, the, the painter who Japanese businessmen clamor over to get their hands on his work, his last words were, life is only sorrow. Life is only sorrow. His last words. Vincent Van Gogh allowed his heart to reason out because of this lover's triangle, because I can't get along with my best friend Paul Gauguin, because this lady of the night won't pay me the attention, because he likes her and she likes me. You know, what is happening now? Life is only sorrow. And the reasoning of your heart will lead to conclusions like that. Uh, Matter of fact, we use the phrase in common parlance in uh, our day and time. The heart wants what the heart wants. Where does that come from? That comes from Emily Dickinson, who was a believer and was writing to Mary Bowles, whose husband was away on a long business trip. And uh, she wrote to her saying, I know the heart wants what the heart wants. In other words, I know you miss your husband. Mary, it's going to be okay. But now we've taken that reasoning that we use. We've taken that phrase and we apply it in this way in our current culture to just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Whatever your heart wants, that must be the reasonable thing to do. Just follow your heart. That's why when Woody Allen divorced his wife, Mia Farrow, and uh, took up his 18-year-old, newly turned 18-year-old adopted daughter to be his wife, problematic on so many levels, they asked him in the press, why would you divorce your wife and marry your 18-year-old adopted daughter? What did Woody Allen say? The heart wants what the heart wants. I mean, I could just do, the reason in my heart, I could just do whatever I want. I just follow my heart. 
That's why Selena Gomez, can I quote Selena Gomez? Am I going to get brought up on charges for this? In a song entitled, The Heart Wants What the Heart Wants, says, you may be right, but I don't care. There's a million reasons why I should give you up. But the heart wants what the heart wants. All right, we've had Van Gogh, Dickinson, uh, you know, Woody Allen, uh, Selena Gomez. We're on a pretty good track right now. We actually need to get to scripture. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says this. The heart is deceitful and beyond cure. Who can possibly understand it? See, when the culture says the heart wants what the heart wants, just follow your heart. What scripture says is, no, your heart is deceitful. Don't follow your heart. And your heart has to be changed, actually. In this text, we see that Jesus knows, verse 47, he knows the reasoning of their hearts. And in John chapter 2, early on in the ministry, according to John, John says Jesus didn't entrust themselves to them because he knew what was in their hearts. The gospel writers, when they encountered Jesus, this is what they say about him. It's like he can see right through us. In other words, he can see the reasoning of our hearts. He can see what we're made for. This person who's come to our shores, it's like he knows exactly what we need. It's like he can see right through us. And let me say this, if you're not a believer, that's most likely the reason why you're rejecting Christ. I mean, you can come up with excuses. Christians are hypocrites. I mean, I don't believe in the miracles. I don't believe these things could happen. They're all excuses, and most of those can be intellectually defeated pretty quick. The reason why you're avoiding Jesus is because you know he knows you. You know he sees right through you. And you know he sees every part of who you are, and that amount of intimacy you're not sure you can deal with, and you don't know what he'll do if, he, if you start to follow him. Jesus says, or Paul says in Romans chapter 2, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. And here's the news about Christianity. What God wants to do in Christ is actually change our hearts, to change what our hearts want, to actually want the good things of this life. So one point, heart's reasoning is not a match for God's resolution. Your heart's reasoning is not a match for God's resolution. Just one point. Now, seven subpoints. Number one, the reasoning of your heart can lead to fear. Verse 43 through 45 of Luke chapter 9. And they were all astonished at the majesty of God. But they were marveling at what he was doing. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The reasoning of your heart will lead to fear. Here in the text, they were already marveling at everything that he was doing. They were taking it all in. They were like, this is amazing. He's healing people. He's feeding people. He's doing all of these amazing things. And in the middle of that, Jesus says, basically, boys, this isn't reality TV. Let these words sink in. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. This is not just some rosy game we're going to play for the next three years. 
The whole point of me being here is to die for you. Let these words sink in. He had already said it. This is at least the second time that he said it. Matter of fact, if you look back in John chapter 9, verse 21, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he's already told them that. He's told them that several times. This is not a reality TV show. Let the word sink in that I have come to die for you. And they were afraid to ask of this saying. Now, I don't think they were scared of him. And here's the reason for that. Many other times in the Gospels, we see that they were more than willing to ask stupid questions, right? I mean, that happened all the time. So I don't think they were scared. I think they were afraid to ask him what he meant by the words, the same way that you and I are afraid to open the envelope from the IRS, right? I just don't know what's in there. Or you get a scan uh, at Prisma or St. Francis, and uh, it pops up in your email. Your scan is ready to be viewed on your my chart. You're like, I just don't want to, I don't know if I want to look. I don't know if I want the news of what's coming. I think that was their fear. Or you get a bill from the University of Alabama, and you just say to your wife, just pay it. I don't even want to see it. I just want you to pay it from whatever account you can. Just pay the bill. You know, sometimes we're afraid. If we ask, what does this mean? That Jesus might say something like this, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and he will die, and you're going to die with me. And I think they were like, can we just not even know the reality? We don't want to know the truth of what's going to happen We just want this game to continue for as long as possible because our hearts are given to fear. What if I follow God and he makes me miserable? What if I give my life to him and he asks me to forgive my dad or my mom or my wife? What if I follow him? Where's he going to take me? I don't want to know. I'd just rather kind of keep that all at arm's length because our hearts are so fearful. So let me ask you the question. The reasoning of your heart will lead to fear. So where's your heart fearful? Where's your heart fearful? And this is the part where you have to do the actual work, right? Because why are you here? To worship the Lord, but also for the Lord to interact with you. You know, when I was younger, I was fearful that you might not be popular in high school. And and then in college, I was fearful that Elizabeth might not say yes. I mean, I'm already like seven seven meals into this relationship. That's like 25 bucks in money that, you know, like I, I can't keep doing this. Eventually she has to say yes to go out with me, right? You know, you're fearful of that. And then in your 20s, you want to have a job and be relevant. Where's your heart fearing now? Because it changes. You know where my heart fears now? Because I'll just be honest. My, my heart fearful on, on two things. Uh, what will happen in this economy? Will I ever be able to retire? That's one. Maybe you should quit giving money away. Maybe you should quit tithing. Maybe you should quit supporting missionaries. Maybe you should hoard it. That's one area where my heart constantly is given the fear. You know the other one is? What's going to happen if I get cancer? What's going to happen if I get dementia? Who's going to take care of Elizabeth? What happens if my kids get in a car wreck? I mean, my heart is given to fear. Where is your heart given to fear? Could you name it? Could you say what it is right now? Because we sang the song, if I can find it again. Uh, Where was the song that we just sang? What was it? 
from the love of my own comfort, from the fear of having nothing, from the fear of being lonely, from the fear of serving others, from the fear of death or trial, from the fear of humility, deliver me, God. Could you say right now to the Lord, this is where my heart is fearful. Could you help me with that? I'm fearful we're going to lose the business. I'm fearful I'll never find love again. I'm fearful my kids will never come back and visit. Just name name it and give it over to the Lord. Here's the second thing. The reasoning of the heart could lead to pride. Verse 26, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put them beside at his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So just imagine the argument. Because after they said, look, let's, let's agree, nobody asks him about what he means about being delivered in the hands of men. Then there's an argument that arises about who's the greatest. They've already been sent out, the 12 apostles have, on the little missionary journey. They've already had the feeding of the 5,000. They've already had the transfiguration. And so you can imagine how it would work. You know, the 12 say, well, look, when we were sent out, we were the ones that went further. We went to the furthest town. Y'all didn't even make it past Greer. You know, we're the ones that got all the way over there. We shared with so many people that you did. Well, look, when we had the feeding of the 5,000, I was the one that picked up all the bread. Y'all were just like frolicking, playing soccer over there. Well, I was the one that did all the work to make sure everybody was fed and everybody had. And I was the one that cleaned up the table after dinner. And then James and John and Peter would say, Last we checked, we were the only three at the transfiguration. Surely we're the best. And then Peter would say, I was the first one he ever called. Top that, people. I mean, the whole thing is just ridiculous, right? Imagine Jesus have to suffer through listening to that. And the king of kings, who is the greatest, having to listen to them, one-up each other, arguing about who's the greatest and in the beautiful subversive way that jesus typically does he takes a little kid and says let me just destroy all of your arguments pulls him beside the side and says whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he who is least among you is the one who is great our hearts can be led towards pride And God's trying to teach us through this child by his side that it's really about humility and dependence. Being willing to put ourselves like a child of God in his lap rather than puffing ourselves up. So let me ask you, where's your heart prideful? Uh, Maybe you're more athletic than your friends. Maybe you're prettier than your friends. Maybe you're wealthier, maybe you're more successful, maybe all your kids are walking with the Lord. Maybe you accomplished something great, maybe you know the Bible better than others, maybe you have read the Bible every day as we're reading through it in the year, and and your friends in Journey Group, well, they haven't done it. You know, where's your pride? You know where mine is? I I hate, it's an awful thing to be a pastor and be vulnerable, because you just have to confess your sin all the time, but... Um, one of my areas of pride is this. I work harder than those other pastors. I don't take a day off like they do. I, I, I make sure all of my emails are, are clean at the end of the day. I, I make sure I'm overworking all of those guys. It's prideful. 
It's not good for me. It's not good for my heart. It's not good for my family. It's not good for the church. It's not glorifying to God, but it comes with a fear that I don't want to be seen as a louse. And so I basically say, I'm going to overwork everybody else. That's pride. Where's your pride? Maybe you're prideful that uh, you haven't done that sin or that sin, but could you name it? And could you realize that Jesus loves you, not because of what you've done, but he loves you like a child? Number three, the reasoning of the heart can lead to exclusivity. This is an interesting one. But look at what he says. John answered. Now, verse 49 is interesting because he just says, the least among you is the one who is great. And John answered, nobody was asking a question. He just interjected himself. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now follow along with me in this. Their first argument was this. One of us has got to be the greatest. And once Jesus said, no, 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 it's not one of you is the greatest, then they moved to the collective. Well, surely we're the greatest. Us, this 12, we're the greatest. Like, we've got the best team. We're the best disciples. We've got the best church. We've got the best company. We've got the best family. So it moved to like a collective pride that was exclusive of others. And Jesus said, don't stop the one who's out there casting out demons. Whoever's not against you is for you. Now, let me pause here and say this. If you're not a believer, uh, then one of the criticisms of Christianity that you've probably had is this. If there really is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, how come there are so many denominations? Y'all are so divisive. Why can't you get it together? If God really is unifying, how come everybody, all the Christians, y'all war with each other? I hear the way y'all talk about the Baptists. I hear the way you talk about the Catholics. I hear the way you talk about that. I mean, y'all are so mean to each other. Why would I join a cult like that? I get that argument all the time. But here's what's interesting about this. Jesus chooses not to stop the people who are doing something in his name who probably aren't as well taught as his disciples. Because there is a beauty. Let me give it to you this way, non-believer. There is a beauty to the idea that nobody has the corner market on who God is. Now, I think, Reformed Presbyterians, I think our theology is right, 100%. I mean, I am down the line with who we are. But when I talk to my Pentecostal friends, you know what I realize? I might be missing something. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, They're crazy. And I wouldn't want to go to that church, but I might be missing something. And I love our worship. I love our worship here. I love our worship in the uh, fellowship hall. But when I watch the Maasai people in Africa worship, I think I might be missing something. When I watch my friends in Korea worship, when I watch the friends in Korea, the Korean church, how they pray, how they'll get up at 4 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, the whole church, and come to the church and pray together for hours before the worship services ever begin, I think I'm, I might be missing something. When I see some of my uh, black brothers and sisters uh, who preach the way that they preach, I think I might be missing something. And maybe non-Christian, here's the deal. Maybe collectively, the glory of God is so great that it takes so many different people 
coming together to fully reflect who God is. Because Elizabeth grew up Episcopalian. You go to that church with the pomp and circumstance, and it's not my kind of flavor. But I go there, I think I might be missing something. They might have a part of it figured out. I don't. And can we just say that that could be beautiful? Because in the new heavens and the new earth, every tribe and language and tongue is going to be there. And we're just a flavor of that. And so he says, no, just let them. They're doing it. Just let them do it. Maybe their theology is not perfect. But they're casting out demons. They're not against you. Then verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of them who went and entered the village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. The people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Next point, the reasoning of your heart can lead to rage. This is fascinating. Jesus gets rejected just a little bit. And the disciples, James and John, want to call down a nuclear strike from the throne of heaven itself. I mean, what is happening? That's our hearts. Our hearts are so prone and quick to rage. You know, I imagine it like the uh, hunt for Red October. I don't know if this is how it works, but I get a lot of my facts from movies like that. Where if you're doing a nuclear strike, somebody gets a code and you, you decode it. And somebody else gets a code and you decode it. And you have a key and they have a key. And you stick it in the thing and you turn it. And the other person has to stick it in the key and turn it. And then the buttons pop up and you count down three, two, one. And that's how you launch a nuclear missile. No idea if that's how it actually works. But for the metaphor... We are so quick when we're harmed, when we're persecuted, when things don't go our way, to stick our key in there and turn it and say, okay, Jesus, you stick your key in, let's nuke these suckers. And Jesus says, not on my watch. And by the way, I'm taking your key back. You don't get a key anymore. There's only going to be one key. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. I'll decide when it's up to my glory and for your benefit when vengeance will be poured out. But that's way above your pay grade. You don't have a key. And so, friends, our hearts are so filled to rage. How could that political party ever believe that? How could he ever say that to her? How could, why would Andy ever say that in a sermon? If I were doing it, I'd do it so much better. How could that guy not see I was in that turning lane? How could that employee not figure that out? How could they ever, if you're honest, your heart is filled with rage so quickly too. That's why there's going to be good news. Jesus wants to change that about us. Now, where's your heart raging? Uh, This is typical This story is typical of what happens. Most Christians will use God to justify the unjustifiable. Throughout human history, that's happened, that Christians have used God to justify the unjustifiable. Um, Banksy was, um, he's a painter, 
famous, obscure, and you've seen his work. He does all spray paint, and it's brilliant what he can do with spray paint, brilliant stuff. Um, I've talked to you about Banksy before, but he had a painting that's out now, and it's a crucified Jesus, and it's beautiful. And it's Jesus, a loincloth over him, and crown of thorns, a pierced side, bleeding. I mean, it's just amazing what he can do in spray paint. Outstretched hands on the cross, and in his hands are bags full of Christmas presents. And Banksy's making the point, you're using God to justify your consumerism on Christmas. You're using God to justify your moralism. You're using God to justify your rage. And you couch it in terms like justice. You're using God to justify your pride. You're using God to justify all of these kind of things that you want to see happen in your life rather than following him. They turned. He turned, Jesus said, rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And then the reasoning of our heart can lead to excuses. This might be the most uh, convicting one. And many of you are like, I'm, I'm done with the convicting. Like, can we just move on? No, we can't. Verse 57. And they were going along the road. And someone said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Really? Are you going to follow me? Do you know what that might mean? Am I beautiful enough to you that you really would follow me? Because I'd love it. But I might not have a place to sleep tonight. We've already gotten rejected from two Samaritan villages. We are headed towards Jerusalem. Not sure where we're going. Are you still willing to follow? The second part. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Interestingly, we have no idea if he actually followed that. Verse 61, yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, in Middle Eastern culture, uh, everybody would have known that's a no, actually. Um, If you say, I'm going to go say goodbye to people at the home, that's basically saying, I'm not interested. That's a no in culture. We do it too in our culture. Somebody says, hey, do you and Elizabeth want to come over Friday night? And you say, "Uh, I don't know. Let me check with Elizabeth. And then you go to Elizabeth and you're like, in my context, I know not all of you are married to somebody named Elizabeth, but you go to Elizabeth, you're like, hey, I don't really want to do this. You want to do this? And no, I don't want to do that. Okay, I'm going to tell them that we're busy because you have something. Is that okay? And you're like, okay, that's okay. You know, you're like, let me go talk to my wife first, knowing you're never going to say yes. You try to find a justifiable excuse that looks good, right? That's the same thing that's happening here. Let me go first say goodbye to my family. And Jesus is like, no, gigs up. I already know what, how this is going to happen. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, our hearts can have excuses for why we aren't following God. For example, I'm not going to evangelize and share my faith because I'm not well-trained. I'm not going to be faithful and generous with my money because I don't have enough yet. I'm not going to follow you. I'm going to have my fun first in college, and then I'll get serious about following you. We have excuses that just reign in our hearts. All these things that are a greater priority. But friends, what would it take for you to be willing to say with unabandonment this morning, 
I'm tired of living a life of excuses. I'm just going to follow him. And I'm going to see what adventure he takes me on. And I'm not going to feel like I have it all together. But here's the problem with the rage, with the excuses, with the pride, with the exclusivity, with all of those things. Our own hearts condemn us. But God reveals himself. In chapter 9, before all of this, we see the transfiguration. And let me read it to you. It's not on the screen. But they go out to Mount Hermon, in my opinion. And in verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. This is Jesus transfigured into the form of who he was before incarnation. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And so you have the uh, predominant priest, the predominant prophet, and now Jesus, the predominant king, all there together, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Verse 32, now Peter was with them, and he was heavy with sleep, but when he became fully awake, they saw his glory. And that's the whole way to live, to live fully awake. In the first service, I said this. I said, wake up, people. And like 30 people were like, like lifted. And I was like, oh my gosh, y'all really were asleep. I meant it metaphorically. But wake up. Sniff the smelling salts of God's grace and get fully awake that life is about dazzling yourselves with the mystery that our God would come to our shores and go to Jerusalem to die for us so that we could live for him. And he was on the cross, who was nothing, as the scriptures say, nothing to behold. His beard torn out, his back splayed open, mucus and pus and blood and tears running down his face. Don't clean it up in stained glass. It was a bloody, awful mess the crucifixion was. With people walking by saying, why would they ever follow that guy? He's the king? But in reality, Peter says, I'll follow him. I, I saw his glory. And you know what that means? If Jesus was a king and radiant and became nothing to behold, it means you, when you look in the mirror and think that you're nothing to behold, you're actually radiant. God actually is doing something in your life that you can't imagine. Or as Frederick Beekner says, the great Princeton scholar, maybe above all of the tales of transformation, where the creatures are revealed at the end as they truly were. The ugly duckling becomes a great white swan. The frog is revealed to be a prince. The beautiful but wicked queen is unmasked in all of her ugliness. They are tales of transformation where the ones who live happily ever after, as by no means everybody does in fairy tales, are transformed into what they have it in them at their best to be. Maybe because of the transfiguration, it's given us a little bit of a picture that you're not a loser, uh, that you're not a failure, that you're not whatever your heart condemns you to see and believe that you are, that actually you're a child of the king. You're a daughter of the king. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're somebody who's made for him to reflect his glory. Maybe that's who you are. The transfiguration helps us to see that. And then lastly and quickly, God is resolute to change your heart. 
verse 51 is this beautiful picture. It's the, uh, I've told you this before, but it's the turning point verse of the book of Luke. He resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, it, it might not be translated that way in the ESV, but that's the way it is. Prosopon is the Greek word. It means he set his face like flint, or he resolutely decided at this point, I will go to Jerusalem because I will die. I will be the ultimate sacrifice so that all of you can come in. And so Jesus didn't just go die to change and forgive your sins. He went and died to change your heart, to circumcise it so that you don't have to live in fear. That's why in Jesus's earthly ministry, so many times he said, don't fear, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Jesus with the cross so you don't have to live in pride. Because you realize that faith is a gift. And so Reformed Presbyterians, I'll tell this to the new members again tonight, Reformed Presbyterians should be, because of our theology, the most humble people on the face of the planet. Because we realize everything was given to us, nothing by our merit. Jesus went to the cross so we don't have to be exclusive. So we can say, everybody come in without money. I know you are not a candidate to be a Christian, but I believe God's doing something in your life. Come in. Come to church with me. Come to journey group with me. All of you, come in. Jesus went to the cross so we don't have to live in rage because the nation's rage and the people plot in, the vein, plot in vain, but the one who sits on the throne laughs because he knows what he's going to do. Jesus went to the cross so we don't have to live with excuses because we can preserve and we can carry on. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. The man who's trying to be a Christian is trying to hold on to something. The man who is a Christian feels that he's being held on by something. It has been put to him. It's there. It may not even seem to be in spite of him, but it's there. It's not what he's doing that matters to him. It's what's been done to him. It's what he has become. It's the awareness of this power within him. It's life. So for some of you... You've just been playing the game of church, let's be honest, for like the last decade, right? And you're doing it, and your family thanks you for it, and you're moral, and you write a check every now and then, and you'll, you know, do some stuff. But are you following Christ? Like, really following him? Asking him, what do you want me to do in life? Not what do I do, and then get you to bless it. And some of you are young, and you're avoiding the trajectory of spending your life following Jesus, but it's been put on you. It's a calling. God's brought you to himself. Don't avoid it. And here's why. Because even in our sin, you are this beautiful, treasured possession. Last point and quote. Uh, after... Uh, before Van Gogh shot himself, uh, he cut off his ear and sent it to that lady of the night in an envelope um, to try to win her back. I've tried that with Elizabeth. It hasn't taken. I'd send her fingernail clippings, random thing, pull out hair, just, just thinking of you, babe, you know. Um, but for some reason, Van Gogh thought that would work. It didn't. Uh, he then rattled off 70 paintings in 70 days. And on the 71st day is when he shot himself. 
But in those 70 paintings of 70 days, one of the most famous ones he painted was a self-portrait of a bandaged ear. You can look it up online, but you've probably seen it. A man, which is him, uh, with a bandaged ear. And in the painting, he allows the focus to be his sin and his shame of his self-harm. It's a, a painting where he shows, I am completely lost. That painting sold in 1998 for $71.5 million. Probably worth around $200 million today because that was a while ago. And Russ Ramsey, PCA pastor, says this about that painting. That canvas faithfully captures a defining moment of shame and the need for rescue by showing his bandaged side. It's become a priceless treasure, and this is how God sees his people. We're fully exposed in our shortcomings, yet of unimaginable value to him. This is how we should see others. And how we should be willing to be seen by others, broken and of incalculable worth. That in Christ, you're truly known and truly loved. So let him change your heart. Let him circumcise your heart. He sees it anyway. Give it to him. And then follow him. Because he's gone to the cross for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Father, we do pray. Guide us and direct us. As we sing this last song, we pray that we would realize that you are a friend of sinners and that you know the reasoning of our hearts. But may we, Lord, ask for you to not just forgive us, but change us. May we be dazzled again by your transfiguration that you've revealed yourself to us and that you are resolute in heading to Jerusalem, avoiding all the excuses. You say in Matthew 26 that you could have called down legions of angels, that you could have given yourself to rage, a justifiable rage, but you were willing for God's wrath to be poured out on you so that we might know that we're of worth even with our bandaged ears and hearts and our shame and our sin. So we fully rest, Jesus, in who you are and in your grace. And we sing praise to you now. Amen.